Like many agencies, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board is more aware of its enterprise risks than ever. Whether it's cybersecurity or the hiring and training of its workforce or mitigating potential fraud in your TSP account, the board is scoring and managing these in about a dozen areas in a more structured way these days. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the board's chief risk officer, Thomas Brandt. The risk treatment plans really are so critical because that's the steps the leadership and the agency takes to to get risks down to a level that's more within our risk appetite. Um, and of course, not surprisingly, one of our top risks is cybersecurity. I think that's a challenge that most organizations are faced with. And so through our risk treatment plan, we're able to work with the accountable party, our, our chief information officer, our chief information security officer, to identify you know what are those actions we're going to take in the year ahead to try to get that risk down to a more acceptable level. But I think as you likely know, and, and, and in the federal community and, and other realms as well, the challenge with cybersecurity is the actions you take today are addressing the cyber risk we have today. But the cyber risk we're going to face three months, six months, is probably going to be different. So that's something I think that's always a challenge we're factoring into our approaches is, you know, addressing the risk we know today, but also thinking about how is this risk evolving and what do we need to do to to plan and prepare for those changes in the future. You mentioned this idea of risk appetite, and it's not an uncommon term. What is a risk appetite? How do you define that? But TSP is the great, great place to talk about risk appetite because all of our participants have an appetite for risk that informs, you know, where they're putting their investments. Are they, you know, risk averse and they've got a lot of their money in the G fund or they may be, you know, more open to risk and have a lot more of their portfolio in, you know, in the C fund. Uh, so the risk appetite is really just, uh, you know, an understanding of what's your comfort level with risk? How much risk are you willing to take or pursue in different areas? And I think what's so helpful and important about risk appetite is getting an understanding of where do different people within the organization sit with regards to their view on risk appetite. And of course, a lot of that's going to be informed on your role, on your background. But certainly as an agency and a leadership team, we want to have some consistency in our views towards risk appetite. So I think what's really helpful for organizations and leaders to have are those conversations around what's our risk appetite in these specific areas? What's our risk for cyber exposure, which probably is going to be really low? What's our risk appetite for innovation? We're probably going to be more open to taking some risk because that's you know associated with change. When we think about strategic risk or financial risk, you know, reputational risk, those are all areas where depending on the nature of your organization, you might you know, you might land at a different point. The other, I think, real key point about those conversations is you can identify where there might be some, you know, variation or misalignment and try to understand what's behind that and and what information or what things can we do to try to get greater alignment in our views towards risk appetite as a leadership team. A lot of agencies are going down this path of understanding their risk. And, And it's, again, because I guess enterprise risk management has been around for quite a while, connect the dots between Understanding my risk appetite, sure. and then how do we treat those? Obviously, you need to make choices around which you know what's your response to risk going to be. There's some risk we clearly are going to accept. There's others where we may be uncomfortable with perhaps the the likely consequences of a risk should it manifest. And you'll oftentimes you know hear conversations around risk likelihood and risk impact as agencies are scoring their risks, and that's trying to understand well. What's the likelihood that this risk is going to manifest? And if we go back to the cyber example, we all know all organizations are constantly, you know, being pinged and tested to see what their defenses are. So high likelihood that there's going to be an effort to, you know, to try to compromise organizations. And then, of course, impact. 
you know, if there was a compromise, what's the impact? And you can look at that across any type of risk that the organization is considering. But then you need to step back and, and of course, make trade-offs. And you, you don't have unlimited resources. So based on the severity of the risk were it to occur, your priorities as an organization and your mission, what are those risks that you want to have risk treatment plans in place for? And for our organization, any risk that scores out at a medium, high, or higher level results in a risk treatment plan. And my staff will work with an accountable party or the business office in, in identifying, you know, what are the actions we're going to take in the year ahead? What resources do we need? What are the dependencies? What are some of the key risk indicators that, you know, we're going to be looking at and tracking to help tell us, um, is this risk getting better? You know, is it getting worse? Um, and do we need to pivot and change course in any direction? And, of course, for us at the TSP, as you cited, we do have a board of directors. And so I do provide regular updates to our board on the status of our risks and also the progress we're making in our risk treatment plans. And they will, in, of course, have questions and, and dialogue around, you know, how, you know, some of those risk treatment plans and, and where we're making progress and then areas where they might have some concerns. I want to shift gears maybe a little bit because you also kind of have a different hat. You also work with a firm, the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management. Uh, I always like to say that because there's the other firm that deals with IT. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, there's two things going on with a firm coming up. You have a, a current survey that's out there to the public at the same time or at least to the federal fe- workforce, federal workforce yes. public. Yep. And then you also have a conference coming up and then you also have some training that's happening with Treasury. So there's a lot to talk to there. So let me ask you to switch hats for a second and, and talk a little bit about Affirm and what's going on with that organization. The nice thing about Affirm is that it's a resource for the federal community, our ERM practitioners, our managers, anybody really that's got a role or wants to know more or learn more about managing risk and addressing risk in the federal sector can go to Affirm for help. Treasury has been hosting a community of practice that's got more than 60 agencies that participate. You know, we have several hundred people that are part of the community of practice, so We've got really good reach and an ability, again, to bring in speakers and share successes and then talk about, you know, things maybe that didn't quite work so well and what were some of the lessons learned. One of the ways in which we we get a sense of how things are going in the federal government is through the annual survey that you mentioned, and that's out right now for, you know, federal government employees to take. What's really helpful about that survey is, again, it's probably the only survey that gives us a sense of how ERM is doing across government overall. And then it gives us insights into what are some of the key factors that contribute to or may have an affiliate or association with um, greater success or greater maturity on ERM within federal agencies. And maybe two specific examples that we've gleaned from prior surveys is that, and probably not surprising, but those agencies that who've made greater progress in implementing ERM usually have a chief risk officer or a director of enterprise risk management who's leading that effort. And then the other piece is that agencies that have also made greater progress typically have included some sort of performance expectations or commitments in their performance plans for managers and executives around implementing or practicing uh, risk management. So for those organizations that might be asking themselves, you know, we're, we're kind of at a plateau or maybe we're struggling to take ERM to the next level, the nice thing about the survey is it can give you some tips about steps you can take to, to grow your program. Once the survey closes, you look at the results. Then it gets uh, publicly released at the upcoming Affirm Summit. That's, yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about the summit and what folks can expect there? We've been doing this now, I guess, 15, 16 years. I can't remember now how long we've been doing the annual summit. And the nice thing is we get you know four or 500 people every year that come out participating in a hybrid environment. 
we bring together, you know, practitioners from the federal level, but also from other governments, state and local. We've had experts from uh, governments in other countries. And then, of course, we bring in folks from private sector. Maybe breaking news for today is that a firm has confirmed that Danny Werfel, the IRS commissioner, is going to be one of the keynote speakers. And we're really thrilled and excited that he's going to be able to speak and sort of share his experience and his insight into how ERM can help organizations. Thomas Brandt is the chief risk officer at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot 
And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, 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 it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that. But I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, honest, yes. here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back 
and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.